Well, again, a pleasure to be with you. Um, I think the chance for us to share in God's Word is, uh, is a real gift and a real challenge for us as we look at God's Word to say, how do we respond to the changes that are going on in the world around us? Uh, and I've been saying all along that when we encounter these kinds of changes, we need both the safety of a community, the safety of God's presence that leads us to these words, but also the challenges of God's Word, that you need both the safety of being in God's community and God's presence, but also, also the, the challenge of hearing a word that might be difficult to hear. And the best way to understand those things are actually found in Scripture. So I'm, I want to make sure that as we are dealing with the, the changes in the world around us, we are understanding it in the context of the Word of God. Uh, interesting thing about the word revival. Uh, historically speaking, revival is not really revival until it starts changing the world around us. A personal revival is just that. It's kind of a personal renewal. And it does not enter into the realm of a full-fledged, full-blown revival until the community around us, not just our own community or our individual lives, but the community around us, the city, the community, the neighborhood. When the neighborhood and the community and the city starts to change, that's when you really see revival. So I want us to keep that in mind as we talk about there are already changes in the world around us. There are already changes in terms of global Christianity. There are already changes in terms of American Christianity. How then, as the people of God, are we going to be a part of the revival of God at work in the midst of us as the people of God, but also in the world around us? So I want to talk tonight out of the book of uh, Acts chapter 15. And if you have your Bible, uh, turn it over to Acts, Acts chapter 15. And as uh, we are looking into the book of Acts, I would like to give us a little bit of background about the book of Acts so that we can get a little sense of where this book is coming from. We can put that uh, next slide up there. Uh, Acts chapter 15 is a recounting of what's now known as the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council was convened by the early church in order to deal with a very significant thing that was going on at the church at that time. There was a major change afoot. And what I want to do is draw the parallel with some of this... Uh, material that we covered this morning and talk tonight about the changes that we see in the world in, uh, that we talked about this morning and a little bit more tonight are similar to the changes that we see in the book of Acts in chapter 15. So the Jerusalem Council had been convened in order to deal with a very dramatic change that was going on. Now you have to understand during the time of the book of Acts and in the uh, New Testament time, there was a deep-seated animosity and conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Jews in particular looked down upon the Gentiles for a number of reasons, uh, saw them as unclean people, as unholy people, but also the Gentiles were the conquering people. So the Roman Empire, these Gentiles had come in and had taken over uh, Israel and had, they had lost their identity as a people. So for the Jews, the Gentiles were in many ways the enemy. And they were the ones who they kind of disparaged and looked down upon. And in fact, there was a common prayer by the Jews directed towards the Gentiles. And that prayer was, I thank you, Lord, that I am not a woman. I thank you, Lord, that I am not a dog. And I thank you, Lord, most importantly, or that I am not a Gentile. So you can see kind of the gradations of a pious Jewish male to view himself as someone who is clearly not a Gentile, lower than a dog. Now, into this context comes the, the new expression of faith called Christianity. So this existing paradigm of conflict or animosity between Jews and Gentiles, into this context comes Jesus and brings the, the Christian faith into this particular context. Now what happened though is that in the initial stages of the Christian faith, and you see this in the book of Acts, almost all of the converts in the early stages were Jewish. 
We know that Jesus himself is Jewish and all of his followers are Jewish. And those who are starting the church are Jews meeting in an upper room in the book of Acts. And so for the first significant portion of early church history, we see that the faith of Christianity is deeply rooted in Judaism, in the Jewish faith. But what was happening around this time, and the reason why the Jerusalem Council had to be convened, was that that demographic was beginning to change. And that demographic was beginning to change in that now you were shifting away from a Jewish-centric Christianity to a much more demographically Gentile-centric Christianity. You were seeing a shift from a, uh, from a, a sect of Judaism to becoming a full-fledged faith that in some sense was disconnecting with some elements of Judaism. So what we see in Acts chapter 15 is a convening of the Jerusalem Council. The leaders of the church get together to say, what's going on in the church right now? We started off as an expression or a subset of, subset of Judaism, but now we have more Gentiles in the church than we have Jews. And so the culture of the church was under attack, they felt. So the shift demographically was the majority of Christians had once been Jewish and now the majority of Christians, Christians were going to be uh, Gentile. Uh, we talked about this a little bit this morning, how in global Christianity we're seeing some of the major dramatic changes in the world around us. That, uh, and these are the numbers that we saw this morning, that in the year 1900, uh, over 80% of the Christians in the world were found in Europe and North America. They were white. Uh, in the year 2005, so within the last five years, we saw this dramatic shift to the majority of Christians in the world no longer white, but now in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. This is a major, major shift in the demographics of Christianity throughout the world. This is as major of a shift as we saw in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And the projection, as we talked about this morning, is that by the year 2050, the overwhelming majority of Christians in the world will be in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The projection from, uh, that I gave to you this morning is that 85% of the Christians in the world by the year 2050 will be non-white. So that within a 150-year time period, from the year 1900 to the year 2050, the face of Christianity went from being predominantly white to being a small percentage being white. So in our lifetime, we're right in the middle of this transition from 80 to 85% of the Christians in the world being European and North American descent to the shift in the next 40 years to 80 to 85% of the Christians in the world being of African, Asian and Latin American descent. Major, major changes. And it is similar, I would argue, to what was happening in the first uh, first century in Acts chapter 15. The shift from a Jewish-centric Christianity to a Gentile-centric Christianity. That shift was going on. Now, I mentioned these uh, global statistics earlier, uh, but I also want to point out that these changes are not only happening in an international level. These changes, by the way, have been discussed by missiologists for the last hundred years. There, uh, there's a huge amount of material written about this global change in Christianity. So we're talking about authors like Philip Jenkins, Laman Sane, Andrew Walls, uh, right here in, uh, in Boston, uh, Peggy, uh, not Peggy, what's her name? The name will come to me later. There's a, there's a missiologist here, Dana Robert, Dana Robert. So we have all these missiologists who have documented Todd Barrett, uh, Todd Johnson and, and, and Barrett, uh, uh, Todd Johnson and Gordon Conwell. These are uh, uh, academics and researchers who have 
done the documentation to show that Christianity has shifted away from North America and Europe to South America, Asia and Africa. Again, this is well documented. This is a done deal. Everybody has acknowledged it's not just a future possibility. It is a past reality. This is the world that we live in right now. But one thing that's interesting is not that it's not only are these changes occurring globally, these changes are also occurring in the United States. And that in the American culture and in American society, we're also seeing less of, an, of a white, middle-class American Christianity and more of a multi-ethnic Christianity. Uh, let's, look at the, uh, let's go to the next slide here. A lot of this change comes from the fact that American society as a whole is changing very dramatically. Philip Jenkins puts it this way. Uh, the passage of the Immigration Reform Act in 1965 might be the most significant event of the 20th century. Now you think about all the things that happened in the ninth decade of the 1960s alone. I mean, that's you had the counterculture, you had the civil rights movement, but uh, Jenkins argues that maybe the Immigration, and, uh, Immigration Act of 1965 is maybe the most significant act overall. If we go to the next part here, uh, what was happening in 1965 is that prior to 1965, immigration was limited to North America, uh, I'm sorry, European Americans or Europeans, so that immigrants coming into the U.S. would be of European descent. And they did this, the, the, uh, uh, the, the government did this, by deliberately, with deliberate racist types of legislation, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, it doesn't take much to figure out what that meant. It meant they excluded Chinese people. So there was a very deliberate attempt to keep out certain races and certain nationalities and certain people groups from the United States. So up until 1965, during that time period, there was a clear, clear way of saying, we don't want Asians in our country. We don't want Chinese. We don't want Japanese. We don't want Africans. We don't want these people in our country. So the limitation is, we will have a certain number of immigrants, but those immigrants have to come from Europe. Now, in 1965, the laws changed. It didn't change necessarily the number of people that were coming in, uh, although that increased gradually. What it did change is it challenged the, the, the fact that all the immigrants are coming from Europe. But now with the immigration law of 1965, immigrants could come from all over the world. So that Asian immigrants were coming in, African immigrants were coming in, uh, immigrants from Latin America and South America and Central America were starting to come into the United States. And so Jenkins argues that this is one of the most significant events of the 20th century in that it completely changed the face of American culture and society with the influx of this, of this uh, a large number of, uh, of, uh, of immigrants. And so it says that the U.S.'s ethnic character will become less European and less white with all that it implies for religious and cultural patterns. Let's go to the next slide. And in the next slide, we're looking at some census projections about American culture. In the year 2005, I'm sorry, 2008, the, uh, the report was that the U.S. minority population was a third of America's population. So one out of three Americans are no longer white. Now this is a, a gradual shift in the last 40, 50, 50 years or so, but in the, in the year 2008, a third of the American population was non-white. Now the next projection is that by the year 2023, that's 13 years away, by the year 2023, the majority of children, everybody under the age of 18, are going to be non-white. So now, there's a lot of debate about immigration and some of the more extreme elements of immigration, uh, against, uh, opposing immigration have said, well, we need to keep America white. 
That actually is some of the underlying current of those opposing immigration reform, saying we need to make sure that America remains a white nation. Uh, one of the surprisingly uh, vocal proponents of this was a Harvard professor by the name of Sam Huntington, who said the, more, the less white we are, the less America we will be and said that the more brown people and black people and yellow people we have into our shores, we are going to lose the very thing that makes us America, which is white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And so Sam Huntington, a Harvard professor, made these kind of claims, and that's picked up by folks like Senator, uh, Congressman Tom Tangrader of, of Colorado, and then it gets picked up by some off-the-wall people like Glenn Beck and Lou Dobbs. So what you get in the media is this concern that America is becoming less white. Well, here's the news flash. You don't have to change the immigration laws. In fact, you can stop immigration right now. America is not going to stay white. Why? Because by the year 2023, the majority of children are going to be non-white. So unless you start killing off children, which I'm not advocating, unless you start killing off children, this nation is going to become a majority minority. There will be no clear minority. Now, it can happen in 2042, it can happen in 2050, it can happen in 2060, but it is a done deal. If by the year 2023, the majority of children are going to be non-white, those children are going to grow up, and they're going to become adults, and they're going to make up the majority of the population. So what we're arguing about is not, is America not going to stay white or become more multicultural? The reality is America is multicultural and will be multicultural. So given that reality, the question is, how are we as a church responding to that reality? And what we talked about a little bit this morning, churches historically in the United States have hidden their head in the sand when changes have come. Or they have done something called white flight, which is when the cities start changing and more African Americans move from the south into the northern cities, or more immigrants come into these major urban, urban centers, the whites move their homes and their churches and move out into the suburbs and start large churches out in the suburbs. That's why you'll notice that in the 19th, 1900s, in the 20th century, there are a lot of Christian colleges that start up, but very few of them, if any of them, actually there's, you can count them on your hand, are starting in urban centers. Think of the major Christian colleges, and they're all in suburban communities. Why is that? Because they left the city because they feared the African Americans moving into the urban centers and the immigrants coming into the urban centers. So you don't start a school in Chicago, you start it an hour away in Wheaton. You don't start a school in Indianapolis, you start it an hour away in, I have no idea where that uh, school is in Indianapolis, that, it's in the middle of nowhere, I spoke there, I was scared because we drove from the airport to the school two and a half hours through cornfields, frightened me to death. So you see most of the major Christian colleges, not in urban centers, but a half an hour or an hour away from the major centers, because this is part of the pattern of white flight. And so what you see historically is that the American church, when these kinds of changes occur, driven by fear, will try to run away from these changes. We'll say, oh, the city's now an evil place because more blacks are moving into the city. More immigrants are coming into the city. The city's an evil place. We have to keep our children safe. We have to keep the, uh, the safety of Noah's Ark intact. And so let's move out to Wheaton, Illinois to make sure that our kids don't live in that evil city of Chicago. And that was the pattern that was followed by many white churches and also white Christian institutions. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, so Christianity in America 
is reflecting these changes that are occurring in majority culture. And what I would argue is that Christianity in America is moving faster in terms of diversity than society itself. So again, the projection is that by the year 2023, the majority of children in America are going to be non-white. Projection is that either by 2040 or 2050, these numbers change and they'll continue to change. But somewhere within our lifetime, the majority of Americans, all Americans, are going to be non-white. That, again, is a done deal. You don't have to change a thing. It's still going to be that way. So what people have said is, uh, the initial response to this is that the more immigrants come in, the more non-whites come in, this was part of Huntington's argument, but this was also the argument of a professor by the name of Diana Eck at Harvard University. And she said that the more diverse we become as a nation, the less Christian we're going to become. And her argument was that if we open the doors to folks from the Middle East, we're going to start becoming more, uh, get more Muslims into the United States. Or if we open the door to Southeast Asians, we're going to get a lot more Buddhist. Or South Asians, we're going to get a lot more Hindus. If we open the door to these other countries, we're going to start getting more and more people coming into the U.S. And the U.S. become less Christian because of all the immigrants who are bringing their indigenous faith with them. Like Buddhism, Hinduism, and all of these things. Now it turns out that Diana Eck was actually incorrect. And the counter to that has been a professor by the name of Stephen Warner, who teaches at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And Warner argues that what has actually happened is that the more immigrants come into the U.S., it's not so much what he calls the de-Christianization of America, but the de-Europeanization of Christianity in America. Did you catch that? So X says, you get all these immigrant groups in, you're going to get a lot more different types of religions. And that actually is true on one level. Eck took it a a step further and said, with all these different immigrant groups here, we're going to end up with a much more pluralistic society and we won't be Christian anymore. But Warner argues, actually, the ones that are coming into the U.S. are more likely to be Christian. And this surprised a lot of people. And then in the last 10, 20 years, with the influx of immigration, Christianity in America has not declined, it has actually stayed steady. Now here's the interesting part of it. If you go to, uh, let's go to the next slide. Because Christianity in America has stayed steady despite the fact that Christianity among whites have declined significantly. Um, go to the previous slide and it should have, it should have shown up some... Yeah, uh, there we go. Uh, around Easter time last year, there were two major articles written in periodicals. Now, around Easter time, both Time and Newsweek do, do the Jesus article. Have you, have you ever noticed that? Right? The week before Easter, they come out with pictures of Jesus in the cover of Newsweek because they're trying to sell magazines. So, right around Easter time, they always do some kind of theme with Jesus on it, something positive about the church. Up until last year, Newsweek did an article called The End of Christian America. And it opened with Al Mohler of the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary lamenting the fact that Christianity was in such sharp decline in America. And he actually said two things. One, he said, we noticed that there was a decline in the Pacific Northwest. But we always knew the Pacific Northwest was pagan, so we don't have to worry about them. I'm paraphrasing Moeller. Then the second thing that he said was, but we were really surprised at the decline of Christianity in the Northeast. That's this area. Because he was saying the Northeast has always been a center of Christianity. That's where the Great Awakening occurred. This is the home of Jonathan Edwards. This is the place where Moody was converted. These are the places where Finney and and all these great evangelical leaders have emerged out of. Harold Ockengay preaching at Park Street. All of these great stories of evangelical. The Northeast has been the center of evangelical faith for a very long time. 
And Moeller was lamenting that the Northeast had seen this incredible decline of Christianity. Now, what, what they didn't get in this article, as well as the article that was written by Michael Spencer in the uh, Christian Science Monitor called The Collapse of Evangelicalism. Michael Spencer, by the way, has one of the most popular blogs. He blogs under the name of The Internet Monk. And I met Michael Spencer, he's actually not a monk, just to let you know. He's not really a monk, he dresses like a normal person. He's actually a Southern Baptist, so he can't be a monk. Um, And one of the things that he says is that he writes to mostly disaffected Southern Baptists. And there are so many of them, in fact, that his website is among the top thousand in the world. There are that many disaffected Southern Baptists that his website is that popular. So Michael Spencer did a series of web blog entries and it got published in the Christian Science Monitor called The Collapse of Evangelicalism. And both Spencer, as well as Meacham in Newsweek in that article that I talked about last year, both of them said the same thing. Christianity in America is in decline. Both of them also referenced a series of studies that were conducted by the Pew Foundation as well as the ARIS report, the American Religious Identification Survey. And both of these surveys recognize that the fastest growing growing religious affiliation in the United States are those who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. In other words, they have some kind of spirituality. They believe they're spiritual beings, but they have no connection to the organized church. The problem with some of these um, surveys, uh, in particular the ARI, uh, the the Pew survey, is that they did something, they did two things. One, they took out the black church and created a separate category. So the number of evangelicals were in decline, but the black church was staying steady or actually growing. But those numbers were not counted into evangelical Christianity because they believe the black church was in a separate category. I'm saying you're missing the boat if you don't believe that black Christianity, African-American Christianity, is theologically evangelical. Now, there are some differences in terms of political, social, but in terms of theology, the black church is evangelical. But then they chose to separate that out and say the evangelical church is inclined, the black churches are actually doing okay. The other thing they did is something called representative sampling. And what they mean by representative sampling is they, there were five Indians who were, um, uh, who were, um, who were surveyed for this, uh, uh, for this, uh, for this uh, uh, survey, and they said... We did representative sampling, meaning we picked five Indians who were Hindu. So right off the bat, there were presuppositions about certain nationalities being certain, uh, certain religions. So we had ten Arabs, they were all Muslims. So this representative sampling meant that they took and they biased the test away from Christian Arabs or from Christian, uh, Indian Christians. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the second largest religious affiliation among the Arabic community is actually Christian. Muslim is the largest, but it's actually, uh, uh, there are a number of different reports on this. One self-reported data from the Arabic community is that about half of the Arabs are Muslim, and about 20% of the Arabs in America are actually Christian. It's not known because everybody thinks, oh, all the Arabs must be, must be Muslim, but actually a significant percentage of the Arabic community in the United States are Christian. They're Coptic Christians, they're Orthodox Christians, they're Evangelical Christians. There is a significant percentage of Arabics, Arabic community who are Christian. In fact, one of the most fun I ever had was uh, speaking at an Arabic Evangelical church. And I was asked to come and speak to the, the, the college group and the young adult group there. And um, by the way, if you ever speak to an uh, ethnic church, Never speak to them during the World Cup 
because I was supposed to speak at 8 o'clock. Nobody was there because everybody was watching the World Cup. And also the culture of, of the Arabic community is a little bit different. So even though it said 8 o'clock, people started showing up at 11 midnight because that's when you really start actually having worship services because that's just the culture. But what I was surprised by and impressed by was the very significant number of Arabic Christians. And this was a church right in the Boston area. There were 300 first generation Arabic Christians and probably about 50 to 100 second generation Arabic Christians in one church. Again, when you do a representative sampling, that's the group you miss altogether. You don't, you, you don't see that there is a significant percentage of Arabs who actually are Christian in the same way there is a significant percentage of Indians, uh, South Asian Indians, who are also Christians. So what this survey did is that it missed the ethnic Christian population altogether or it underreported the ethnic Christian population altogether. So when you look at those numbers from that lens and framework, you realize, wait a minute, they're saying that Christianity is in decline because they're counting only white Christians as Christian. They're missing out on the black church, they're missing out on uh, Arabic, uh, uh, Asian, and, and Latino, all these Christians who are, or are clearly evangelicals in their theological orientation, we're missing that group completely at the rush to declare evangelicalism as defined by white Christianity. So these surveys misled us in some sense to say there is a decline in Christianity in America when actually it's not the decline of Christianity in America, it's the decline of white Christianity in America and the increase of multi-ethnicity in America, multi-ethnic Christianity. So let's look at the, this statistic here. The two fastest growing and largest denominations are the Pentecostal and Baptist. And if you got all the Baptists in one room, it'll be very confusing, but let's get all the Baptists in one big room, and 68% of that group will be white, and uh, th uh, 32, 30, I'm sorry, 64% will be white, and 36% will be non-white. If you got all the Pentecostals in one room, 58% will be white, and 42% will be non-white. These are the fastest and largest denominations in the United States. Now, when you say Baptist, you're including Southern, American, National, Progressive, so in that sense, you're kind of all-encompassing term of Baptist. Same thing with Pentecostals. There are a lot of sub-denominations within the term Pentecostals, and a lot of those are divided along race and ethnicity. But the general point is that if you look at these denominations as a whole, the Pentecostals are some of the fastest growing denominations that's also the most diverse. Now you look at the three denominations that are the least diverse. Let's put that next slide up. The smallest and the declining, fastest declining denominations are Lutheran, Congregational UCC, and Episcopalian Anglican, and it's, the correlation is amazing. The, the more mono-ethnic and majority overwhelmingly white you are, the more likely your churches are going to decline. So if you are a church that is 96% white like the Lutherans are, you're going to be one of the fastest declining denominations. Or if you're like the Congregational UCC, a lot of churches that are Congregational UCC in the Boston area, you'll see that they have beautiful buildings in downtown Boston. You go down to the downtown area, they have these magnificent structures they're, they're incredible old, old uh, buildings, but there's not a whole lot of people worshipping there. In fact, they can't afford the heat, so they actually all uh, meet in the basement and, the, and downstairs with a little space heater. Because there's only about 20 elderly senior citizens over 70 years old worshipping together. Uh, and what's the use of fill, trying to fill up a thousand person sanctuary? So what you're seeing is the reality that this, the denominations that are overwhelmingly mono-ethnic but particularly overwhelmingly white are the denominations that are the fastest declining in the United States. Let's go to the next slide. My contention, therefore, is that 
American Christianity is becoming more diverse at a faster rate than the rest of American society. And we can say by 2040, 2050, American society will be uh, multi-ethnic or majority non-white. I would say 10, 15, maybe even 20 years before that, the American church is going to be majority non-white. This is the first time in, in my recollection that the church has actually been ahead of society. You know, the church usually catches up to society 10 years later. This is the first time we're going to be actually 10 or 15 years ahead in that the diversity that we're going to see in the society around us is going to be reflected in the church at a faster rate than in the culture around us. Now, this to me is great news. Again, this is the first time in a long time that we've actually been ahead of the curve. We're actually doing things at a rate faster than the world around us, which means that we can actually lead in this area rather than follow in this area. See, one of the interesting things. Now, I teach a course on postmodernity. I teach about the church's response to postmodernity. And one of the things about this course is that I hate teaching this course. I hate teaching this course because the seminary said, we've got to teach a course in postmodernity. It's the hot topic. All right, I'll teach it. I'm the one that's supposed to talk about the new things in the church, so I'll teach a course on postmodernity. So I went and I Googled postmodernity online. And I went and Googled it. And the first ten entries, when you type in the word postmodernity, are about the Christian and the church's relationship to postmodernity. So, the, so postmodernity is something we talk about in the church. It's actually not talked about in other parts of American society. Here's what's interesting. I have a friend who teaches at Princeton. He's a, he's a philosophy uh, professor at Princeton. He's an evangelical Christian. So we're having a conversation. I said, hey, uh, do you guys talk about postmodernity at, uh, at Princeton? He said, no, we don't talk about postmodernity. It's like 20, 30 years ago we were talking about that. That's history. And then we don't even think about that anymore. Uh, we, we have all this other stuff that we're into now. Philosophically speaking, postmodernity is something that came and went and is long gone 10, 20, 30 years ago. But what you, you wouldn't know that if you walked into a typical American church, because that's all they talk about. Postmodernity in the church, postmodernity in the church. All the books are about postmodernity in the church. I'm sorry, that ship sailed 20 years ago and we're still on the dock saying, postmodernity in the church, postmodernity in the church. That's not the way it works. What we do need is a place that actually we can lead in diversity issues, in racial reconciliation issues, in racial justice issues. That's something the church actually can lead in because we're experiencing it faster than the world is experiencing it. The sad part is, the church is still behind when it comes to the issue of diversity, racial reconciliation, and racial justice. Uh, a quick statistic. In the year 2005, there was a study done, no, 07, 2007, there was a study done about the number of multi-ethnic churches in the United States. It was a study done by um, Curtis D. Young at Bethel, uh, Bethel University. And he said that less than 8% of the churches in the United States were integrated. Now he used a very generous sociological guideline. And that guideline was if you have 80% of one group and 20% of another group, that qualifies for being multi-ethnic. I personally don't think that's very multi-ethnic if you have 80% of one group and 20% of another group because more likely that 80% is going to dominate everything that goes on in that church. So I don't quite think that's multi-ethnicity, but the sociological definition of multi-ethnicity is 80% of one group and 20% of another. But even given those generous guidelines, less than 8% of the American evangelical churches qualified as a multi-ethnic church. And here's the even crazier part of that. The young went a little further and explored that statistic and said, actually, half of those churches aren't really multi-ethnic. 
Because they're in what you call transition periods. Meaning they were in an all-white neighborhood and the neighborhood's becoming all black. So now it's kind of, you know, the, 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 the church is in transition. But within 5-10 years, the church is going to become an all-black church. So that means less than 4% of the churches in the United States are integrated racially, are considered multi-ethnic churches. Now think with me, if we heard of any other American institution that had less than 4% integration, let's, let's say you knew that the, uh, the uh, educational system was less than 4% integrated, people would be in an uproar and say, this can't be, this is America, we can't have this. Or uh, less than 4% of the, wait, uh, I was about to say the Senate, but it is less than 4% are non-white. So any, uh, maybe there are other examples out there. But if you think about any kind of institution in the United States that has less than 4% integration, people would be in an uproar. People would say, how can we have this? This is the United States of America. We're, in, you know, uh, we're a great nation founded on diversity. And then to say less than 4%, it would be, it would be unheard of. Yet here we are as a church with less than 4% integration in our churches, and nobody says a word. Nobody says, this is a sin. This is wrong. Especially given that demographically, numerically, we're moving at a faster rate of diversity than the society at large. And yet here we are, lagging behind when, in relation to the, uh, to the world around us. So what's happening here? Uh, let's go to the next few slides. I don't, I'm, I'll, I'll cover this at another time. Um, so what's happening here? What happened in Acts chapter 15 is informing what's happening in the 21st century in American Christianity. In Acts chapter 15, there was something that I would call the Jewish captivity of Christianity. One of the things that happened in Acts chapter 15 is that we are told that the Judaizers demanded something of the Gentile Christians. What was, that, that, what was one of their demands? Circumcision. Okay, we don't want to say that too loudly. Circumcision was being demanded of the Gentiles. Say, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to first become a Jew because, and through circumcision. Now, that was kind of, you know, that's the opposite of seeker sensitive. So what you get there is a barrier that is put up for the Gentile believers to become Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. And the, and the way I would phrase that is, uh, let's go to the next slide, is the the Jewish captivity of Christianity in the first century. Meaning, the church was more reflective of the culture of Judaism than actually what the scripture says. It was reflecting the values of a culture, of, of Jewish culture, rather than what the scripture actually taught, the faith of Christianity in the context of, of the scriptures. So, the Jewish captivity of the church is what Acts chapter 15 is trying to work through. How are we going to become a global faith if we are held captive to the Jewish cultural norms and values? Now, the parallel to this, let's go to the next slide here, and then the way I've defined, uh, all the way to the next slide. The way I've defined captivity is when the church looks more like a particular culture than it looks, like the, uh, than it looks more like the scriptures. Uh, you see up there in the upper right-hand corner, that's Constantine. And that's kind of the, one of the other expressions of cultural captivity in that Constantine declared the Christian faith is now the faith of the Roman Empire. So then you get the Constantinian captivity of the church. And so you see these examples of where the church looks more like surrounding culture uh, than the values of scripture. And I would argue at this stage right now, and here are some other examples of that, uh, instead of got milk, you, you've got Jesus. Uh, instead of uh, Jesus, Intel inside, you've got Jesus inside. 
Instead of iPod, you've got iGod, which is ironic. Uh, and then instead of Reese's Pieces, you've got Jesus Pieces. I, I don't know how that works. Um, but you start seeing expressions within Christianity that look more like the culture than it looks actually like what the scripture commands. So what I would argue for the last hundred years or so in global Christianity, maybe even longer than that, is we have seen the western white cultural captivity of the church. So that the church looks more like western white culture than it actually looks like the scripture. And that it has been shaped and formed by western white culture more than what the scripture actually dictates. So, now, now, now let, let's get our minds around this for a little bit. In the same way, in Acts chapter 15, there was a Jewish cultural captivity. In the 21st century and in the 20th century, there is a Western white cultural captivity of the American church. Uh, I'll give you three characteristics. We'll try to unpack these, and then, uh, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue to talk about how we respond to this at, in, the, in the future sessions. There are three characteristics that I've noticed in American Christianity that reflects more Western culture than it reflects actually the scripture. The first characteristic is that of individualism. And I would say not just individualism, but an excessive individualism, a hyper-individualism. The second characteristic that I would argue is, uh, is part of this Western white cultural captivity is extreme materialism and consumerism. And the third characteristic of Western white cultural captivity is racism. And these are the three pillars that we've built American Christianity upon where we are now reflecting the Western white cultural captivity of American Christianity rather than the true values that we see in Scripture, the values that we, see, uh, that we see in Scripture. So let me do a little bit of unpacking about each of these. Let's start with individualism and how individualism, the value of American Christianity, has been co-opted by the Western value of individualism rather than scriptural values. You know, a few examples of this. The first is... Um, if you walk into a typical American evangelical church uh, and you, have the, you see the PowerPoint worship, um, you will find uh, that the majority of those songs focus not on God, but upon the individual. Uh, many years back in the day, before the advent of these projectors, we used to have something called overhead projectors. Now that's how old I am. I remember overhead projectors. There were these, these strange boxes and it would shine light and then you would have these transparencies and it would shine light and it would project the image onto the screen. Now these overhead projectors meant that instead of everything being on a computer file, you had these boxes of transparencies. Now what was interesting is that if you would file these transparencies based upon the first letter of each of the songs, you would find one or two songs that began with the letter A, Awesome God. One or two songs that began with the letter J, Jesus, obviously. And uh, one or two songs that began with the letter G, uh, God. But what was always the biggest folder in this box of transparencies? The letter, the letter I. In fact, it would take up half of the box. You would have to have I part one, I part two, and I part three, because that's the dominant first letter of all the songs that we were singing. And when you think about that, who are we worshipping at that moment? Are we worshipping the great I am, or worshipping the great I? There is this excessive individualism and there is this focus and this hyper uh, focus on the individual expression of our faith rather than the corporate expressions of our faith. This happens in our reading of scripture. I notice this when, uh, when, you, when you kind of uh, go to a church gathering and you, you look at some of the sermons that are preached. A lot of the sermons come out of the New Testament epistles. 
And what's interesting to me is how much of those lessons and practical applications are always about how the individual can be a better you. How you can have a purpose-driven life. How you can be a better you. All of these things are themes that you see in the evangelical church. Now, when I read through the scriptures, and you know, part of my job as a seminary professor is to know what the scripture says, I read through the scriptures and I find two, maybe three books of the Bible that are addressed to individuals. Timothy, Titus, Philemon, which none of you have read anyway, that's okay. But there are about two or three books in the Bible that are written specifically to individuals. And even those books have a broader corporate application. And in fact, the other 63, 63 plus books of the Bible are written to communities, to the church in Thessalonica, to the people of God, to the nation of Israel, to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, to the believers scattered all over the place. They are not written to individuals, they are written to communities. And yet, if you look at the content of 99% of American evangelical sermons, they're focused on how you apply this for the individual. How can I personally get something out of this as an individual? Now, is that a biblical value or is that a cultural value? Is that what the scripture calls us to? Or is that what we have determined because of the pressures we feel or our acquiescence to the culture around us? That's the reflection of the Western cultural captivity of the church. The second part of this, uh, let's go to the next slide here and talk about consumerism and materialism. Okay, now we're getting really, really, really into dangerous territory here. And I'm going to have to be careful. I'm going to ask... I said it, uh, last night that we want this to be a safe place, so I'm going to ask that you give me a little bit of latitude and allow me to say something that might be bordered on controversial. I think it's very interesting that many evangelicals have a problem with opening up our pocketbooks to share the wealth through healthcare reform, and that becomes very problematic because it touches our pocketbook more so than it actually has anything to do with the political issue itself. Now, I'm generalizing, I understand. And I understand that there are some very good people who oppose health care reform for other issues. But when I heard the debate in the larger public arena, I did not hear health care is bad for our nation. I heard health care is bad for me. I'm going to lose my doctor. I'm going to have to pay more for premiums. I'm going, to have to, uh, I'm going to have to have pay more percentage. So what I heard was a selfish, materialistic approach to how the government operates, rather than the sense of actually maybe part of what the gospel calls us to is to actually share of our resources. That's part of what the Christian message is. Is it not? Did, did all of you read Acts chapter 2? Or did, am I the only one that read that passage? that maybe a part of the Christian message is the call for the Christian to share of our abundance and to give of our abundance. But the second we start coming into, well, you can't force us to do that because that's socialism. Well, actually, I think the opposition is not to socialism. The opposition is that you're going to have to pay a little more out of your pocket. So I ask there, is that a biblical value the Christian opposition to a sharing of our resources with each other. Is that biblical or is that cultural? Is that coming from what the scripture calls us to do as a Christian community and to live into those values? 
Or is that something that American society has told us that's the way we should operate? I'm wondering if our concern and over-obsession with some of these elements of politics has more to do with our pocketbook than with actually our concern, uh, what the scripture might call us to, which is concern for the poor and the alien and the immigrant among us. That to me I see as a biblical standard. Thou shalt deny health care. I'm not sure that's in the Bible. Thou shalt care for the poor. Thou shalt give uh, generously to those in need. That's all over the place. But I'm wondering if the evangelical Christian voice has been co-opted more by the cultural value of materialism, consumerism, more so than by the value of Scripture. That's the question that I'm raising. So something for us to think about and reflect upon. I'll give you another example of this. A few years ago at a Christian college in the Colorado area, uh, a professor was fired. He had assigned two books on economics. And the two books on economics kind of challenged some of the uh, elements of the free market system of capitalism. And so the, the president of this Christian college fired this person and said, you know what, we can't have that. A Christian college cannot have someone who's not going to preach capitalism in the free market system. And actually said, uh, in, a, in a news interview, free market system is the closest system to God. And therefore, if someone's going to teach against free market capitalism, we're not going to have that person teach at our Christian college. So you see here the conflation and the confusion of a capitalist system with the American system with an American Christianity. Now, am I saying we should change this? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that why is it that Christians are so invested in a system that's not necessarily biblical? Is it a bad system? Not necessarily. But is it a system that the Bible advocates for? Absolutely not. Neither is socialism, neither is capitalism. So why is it that Christians get all, all messed up and, and all angered when we start talking about the fact that maybe the government has some kind of responsibility to care for the poor and the alien among us? Why is that such a bad thing for us to talk about as Christians? In fact, if we really believe that America should be reflective of Christian values, here are two Christian values that I say we the church demand our government impose, which is caring for the poor and caring for the immigrant. Those are great Christian values. That's one way American society can really reflect the value of Scripture. But how come when those kind of phrases come up, oh, you're a communist, or you're not, you can't be an evangelical Christian and actually believe that you should advocate for the poor among you or for the immigrant among you? I'll give you one more example of this. Um, a few years ago, I was speaking at a, I won't mention the name of the, of the school, it's a Christian college somewhere out there. Um, and one of the questions that I raised, because I knew at that school there was an NRA club. And uh, I was wondering about this, and again, please don't get me wrong, please don't misunderstand me. I have nothing against the right to bear arms. That's a constitutional amendment, that's fine. The question though for me is, Looking through the Bible, I have yet to find a single passage that says that I have the right to bear arms. Uh, if you find it, please let me know. Because I've read through the scriptures, looked for it over and over again. I just have not found a single passage of scripture that says that I have the right to bear arms. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not opposing the right to bear arms. It's a constitutional right. I'm just saying that that's not a scriptural value. Uh, do I have a problem with that being a constitutional? No. No problem at all. I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. Now, on the other hand, I've read through the scriptures and I have found at least a hundred, I'm still searching through this now, at least a hundred passages that talk about 
showing love, mercy, and compassion for the alien and for the immigrant among us. So the question I raised at this Christian college is how come you have an NRA club, which is fine, that's fine, but how come you don't have any kind of group that advocates for the immigrants in your society? How come there's no group talking about immigration reform? Because the Bible says over and over again, care for the alien and the immigrant among you. And there you are as a Christian institution, more likely to join the NRA than you are likely to talk and advocate for immigration reform. Again, is that a biblical value drawn from scripture? Or is it a cultural value drawn from the world and society around us? That's called cultural captivity. I'll close with this, explanation of cultural captivity. And that's the element of racism. And when we talk about racism, one of the problematic elements of it is it's tied in with individualism and consumerism. Because the idea of, of slavery was a materialistic, consumeristic act. And for us to see that slavery as nothing more than just kind of a necessity of a time, it was an act to perpetuate a, a, an economic system, an unjust economic system. And what we end up doing with racism is we so hyper-individualize it that we have no way of understanding it in the proper corporate context. I'll, I'll, I'll share this with, a, with, a, with an illustration. A few years ago, about uh, seven, eight years ago, I was asked to speak to, to a group of Asian American students at Harvard University. So I went in there and I started talking about the corporate reality of racism. That it's not just about individual acts of racism, but that it is a corporate reality. Here's what I mean by this. Usually when you talk about racism, what's the response? I'm not a racist. Why aren't you a racist? Well, I'm not a racist because I've never owned a slave in my life. Or I've never taken land away from a Native American. How many of you have owned a slave in your life? Yeah, nobody here. How many of you, have, have, how many of you have, have taken land away from a Native American? Nobody here. Hey, individually, every single one of us are not guilty of racism. Right? That's the answer that I get when we talk about racism. Race. Oh, no, no, I'm not a racist. I've never owned a slave. I've never taken land away from a Native American. That's the pat answer because you're looking at it through the uh, particular lens of individualism, which again, is that a biblical value or a cultural value? So when you start denying uh, the corporate sin and reality of racism, now no individual is guilty of racism. And the way you deal with the guilt of racism is because it's an individual act, you deal with it on an individual level. So let's give you this scenario. So, you know, 10 years ago, I had a really bad thought about an African-American neighbor of mine. It was terrible. I had a bad thought. I, I didn't say it out loud, but I certainly had that thought. And I feel absolutely horribly guilty about this. 10 years later, I'm still thinking about that bad thought that I had 10 years ago. And I just feel awfully guilty about it. I got to do something to make up for that guilt. I got to get rid of this guilt of having that bad thought about my African-American neighbor. So this year, I'm definitely taking the King holiday off. And I'm going shopping instead of going to work. That's going to relieve me because on that individual personal level, I did one good thing to make up for that one bad thing that I did 10 years ago. And that, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, uh, hyperbolizing a little bit, that's how most of us look at the sin of racism. It is an individual thing, and that's why the phrase white guilt is insufficient. It is, it is actually, I, I want to do away with that word, because it doesn't make sense, because it puts the focus on this individual expression of sin. And saying, well, I did a bad thought ten years ago, now I'm going to do a good act, and that's going to make up for racism in my life. When actually, the sin of racism is corporate. It is a corporate reality. 
And the way I phrased it with, uh, with this group of Asian Americans is, you're thinking on an individual level when you talk about the sin of racism. And in fact, as an Asian American, I am the least guilty in this room of the individual sin of racism, right? Because, you know, you, you, uh, some of you all, you know, your, your ancestors might have been slave owners. Or your ancestors might have been those who took land away from a Native American. My folks didn't come over here until the late 1960s, alright? So we got nothing to do with all that stuff. That's not even in our history at all. We, we came after all of that junk went down. So we're okay. We, we're definitely, our hands are clean. And that's what was the response coming from these Harvard Asian American students. Saying, you talk about the sin of racism, we are the least guilty of all. Because we've never taken land away from a, a Native American. We've never held slaves. In fact, not even in our history is that true in America. So what you see is this absolving of guilt by saying, we individually did not participate in this. What I said to the, the group of these Harvard students is, yes, individually you are not guilty. But corporately there's a responsibility. Corporately you are here at an institution that had once been a land that belonged to the Native Americans. And you are here at an institution that had been built on money uh, that, that traces back to slave labor. And so what you have are, are you have benefited from a system of oppression. And as a beneficiary of that oppression, you are also complicit in that oppression. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say that you were starting a new business, and you had a great idea for a new business. And I said, hey, you know what? I have this uh, little piece of property uh, in, in Boston. It's yours. I'll give it to you for free. Take it off my hands. You can move into that storefront. It's right on Boston Common. It's a great location for a store. I'll give you that building. Then I say, you know, I've got some cousins that just need jobs. They're lazy guys. and I, I want to give them something to do. So for the rest of their lives, they'll work for you for free. They'll work the counters. They'll work the back storeroom. They'll work the warehouse. They'll, they'll give you free, uh, free labor. So I have now given you free land and free labor. And if you mess that business up, you have got to be the worst business person in human history. How could you get free land and free labor and just mess that business up? You can't do it. Because you've been given free land and free labor and now you should be able to flourish in that business because you've got no cost. American society was built on free labor kidnapped from Africa and free land taken from the Native American community. And yes, we can say we have the greatest economy in human history. Well, yes, when you build it on free land and free labor, you better have the greatest economy in human history. So, we are now complicit in the larger structural sin of racism. Not just the individual sin of a racist thought 20 years ago, or 5 years ago, or 20 minutes ago. That's not the sin. The sin is that we are complicit in a system of oppression and a system of injustice. I teach in the field of evangelism. One of the things I teach my seminary students, and some have never done this, is how to lead a person to Christ. You would think that most people would know. Not even pastors in training know how to do this sometimes. So you teach a very basic thing of how to lead a person to Christ. Now one thing I don't do is say when a person comes to you and say they want to be led to Christ, don't make them sit there and confess every single sin they've ever committed. Yeah, have you ever done that? No, you don't. when you lead a person to Christ, you don't say, alright, every single thought, every single sin you've ever had, you need to confess it right now. You know, 17 days later, they're still confessing their sins, or they've lost interest, and they're going to walk away and say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous, I'm trying to confess every single sin before I can become a Christian. What do you do when you lead a person to Christ? What do you deal with? 
The original sin. The sinful nature. That's what you get at. You don't make them confess every single sin, sin they've ever committed because it takes too long. You focus on their sinful nature and the original sin of their individual lives. In the same way, when we talk about a corporate renewal and revival for American society, we need to go back to the original sin of American society. And that original sin is the kidnapping of Africans and the genocide of the Native Americans. And we have not sufficiently dealt with that sin. We want to talk about the cultural problems in our world right now. We want to talk about a hypersexualized society. We want to talk about immorality. We want to talk about greed. Where did that begin? Did that begin 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago? No, go back to the original sin of American society and history, which is the enslavement of the African community and the genocide of the Native community. That's a genuine, authentic look at the corporate sin of American society, not just the individual sins and expressions of sin here and there. These are the challenges that we face. The challenges that arise out of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 goes on to tell us that there are some major things that emerge out of that. They knew that they were in the midst of this wonderful, what the, what the Greek text calls the kairos moment, an opportunistic moment, a moment where it can go in, in the different directions. It could either become this subset of Judaism that's going to fizzle out because there's no movement, there's, no, there's no, nothing kind of forward-looking. Or it could become this global phenomenon. It could be something that transforms the world. It could be something that goes into all the corners of the world and change not just the Middle East, but change Europe, North America, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. It's on the verge of that moment in the first chapter, in the first century, in Acts chapter 15. And the leaders of that moment, even though they might not have seen the big picture, recognized that they needed to be faithful to God and to answer the call of Scripture and God's Word more than their love for their own culture. And I'm saying right now that that's the moment that we're here, here in the 21st century. The world, of, the Christian world is changing. American society is changing. We can say we're going to cling to the Western white cultural captivity of the church for dear life and make sure that we remain and maintain the Western white hegemony of Christianity. Or we can say there is something that God is doing and I want to be a part of that work. That's what happens in Acts chapter 15. The leaders say, we know God is at work. We know that the same spirit that fell upon the Jewish community is the same spirit that fell on the Gentile community. We know that the work of God is moving among the Gentiles and we can't ostracize them anymore. We can't marginalize them anymore. We need to bring them into the body of Christ and make them a part of our community and also maybe even submit to their leadership at times as well. These are the drastic changes that occur in Acts chapter 15 and these are the changes that are needed now in American Christianity and in global Christianity. We're going to talk a little bit more about how this might work out. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you are at work. God, you are sovereign over history, over all of creation. And even as these changes are occurring in the world around us, even as these changes are occurring in American society, even as these changes are occurring in the city of Boston, in Quincy, we know that this is your work ultimately. And we, Lord, want to be a part of that great work that you're doing in our midst. We, Lord, want to say yes to the good work that you're doing. We, Lord, want to be a part and, and, and to participate in the great kingdom work here in our city, in our nation, and in our world. We confess, Lord, there are times that we have loved our own cultural values more than the scriptural values. 
That goes across the board, Lord. All people groups have this sinful tendency to love our cultural values more than the values of Scripture. I pray that you would call us to a new reality, a reality that moves beyond our cultural captivity to a scriptural captivity, captive to the words of God, captive to the words of Scripture, in such a way that we move as those who are not captive to another entity or a power, but really to the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of your Holy Word. We pray, Lord, that you would move us forth in this direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you please stand?